Friends don't let friends eat sea cucumbers. <laughs> Just thought you might want to know that. My son Paul and I were in Flushing, New York a few days ago in the midst of a huge China, Chinatown area, and we went into a grocery store, and we went into some stores, and they had these things called sea cucumbers that they were selling for about $280 a pound. They looked kind of like a slug with little spikes coming out of it. Didn't look like a good soup idea. But I bring greetings from churches in Africa, your brothers and sisters, and also from Sturgis, Michigan, which is our home church. And this is the first time we've been back in Holly for a few years. This morning I'm continuing in Pastor Phil's tradition of looking at books of Exodus, in the book of Exodus, looking at chapters, and we're going to be visiting in Exodus chapter 31 this morning. Chapter 31 of Exodus is mostly a conversation between God, the great I am, and Moses, and who knows what the name Moses means. All you Bible This does get to tribes. What you have to realize when you look at who these people were, these are tribes. It's said of Jacob, my, my father was a wandering Aramean. It also said, and Jacob dwelled in tents. You look back to the time of the patriarchs. This is, I think, four or 500 years later. But these people are now, they were slaves in Egypt for a long time. They were urban people. They were building the grain cities. They were doing important work for the Egyptians. They were probably somewhat educated and skilled, but they were still slaves. And now here they are wandering across the Sinai wilderness. You can imagine it being cold at night. There's wild animals. They look up in the sky, and they see the vast, mysterious heavens. But they are alone. They are far from any city. They are totally outside of where they were. But they are also tribes, 12 tribes, the sons of Jacob. And if you look back to Genesis chapter 49, I'm not going to belabor it, but Jacob, when he was dying, he blessed his children. And he also said, now I'm going to tell you what's going to happen to you in, in later times. Of Bezalel says he's of the tribe of Judah. That's, one of, that's the, the chief artisan, the chief craftsman. Jacob said of Judah, Judah, you are he whom your brothers shall praise. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's children shall bow down before you. So that's like the ruler tribe, right? That's the tribe that's the boss. We know David was from that tribe. We have the name the lion of the tribe of Judah. Was Jesus of the tribe of Judah? 
Jesus was of the tribe of Judah, lineage-wise. The other tribe that's mentioned here, that Aholiab, it says he's of the tribe of Dan. In verse 16, Genesis 49, it says, Dan shall, be ju- Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Then it also says, Dan shall be a serpent by the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heels so that its rider shall fall backward. I'm not sure if that means Dan is going to be like kind of a not your buddy, or, but it said he's going to be a judge. The point that I'm making here is that the chief craftsmen for this great work of making the tabernacle were from different tribes. And if you know anything about tribes, tribes always have a lot of rivalry. Tribalism is a system of governance, a system of life, where things don't really work out that well. And it's the dominant system of governance in South Africa. Um, Tribalism is big in Africa still. And and here you have tribalism in America, like sports teams, like Michigan, Ohio, MSU. We still have tribalism in our society, but it's, it's on a low roar. The challenge, I think, with the people of Israel was you had these 12 tribes, and there must have been, God's word gives a lot of boundaries, a lot of proportion, a lot of ideas like redistributing wealth every 50 years, giving lands back. There's all kinds of ideas to try to keep harmony between the tribes. But here we see the workmen are from different tribes. The work that they're to do is a work of communication. God is a God of heaven. We are a people of earth. And God wanted to communicate something of his majesty and beauty through the things that were created. We know that when the people left Egypt... They plundered the Egyptians, it says. The Egyptians gave them all their jewelry the night before they left. So the people of Israel, when they were following Moses, they had some jewelry with them. And so of, these, of the gold, of the onyx, of the fabric, of the skins of badgers and all the things that are named, they're supposed to contribute to build this tabernacle. And in chapters 35 and 36, you'll hear how the offering comes in huge. And people give all their beautiful things. And it said the rulers gave onyx and they give precious stones for making this breastplate of Aaron. And there are 12 stones for each of the tribes. So the tribal motif is there that God responds. He's saying, look, this is who you are. You're a bunch of tribes. This is how I'm going to deal with you. I'm going to give you things to do. I'm going to acknowledge you. You're my people. I'm your God. It's communion. It's also communication of who he is. I call it physical signs of the divine presence. Now, the specific knowledge of cutting of stone is one of the things that's made. It's cutting and setting of stones. That brings to mind, who has ever heard of the Kohenur? I'm probably saying it wrong. We're Baptists. We're not big diamond people. We're not big jewelry people. Bill, you know what the Kohenur is, don't you? What is it? It's a diamond. It weighs 160 grams, and it's one of the most valuable diamonds in the world. But it has a beautiful name. It means the mountain of light. Now, is that a cool name for a a stone? And you think about the skills that it takes to cut a stone. you got to cut all the angles just right so that the light goes into the thing, and it doesn't just all go out. It kind of bounces around inside of the diamond. It gets refracted. So you look at the thing. And you see something like a star when you look at that diamond. It's something beautiful. It's a sign of what God made. 
God put the stars in the heaven. God did all these cosmic, beautiful, creative things. God makes life. God makes it all possible. But all we can do is we can take a piece of carbon and we can cut it just so and we can make this beautiful stone that reminds us. It's a point of focus. We can't see all the things. Our senses are so limited. We see beauty in human terms. We see beauty as we can understand in our flesh state. God wanted to communicate even more with us in more ways. So now let's look at some of the the items that were made. Verses 7 through 11, we have items of the divine presence. The tabernacle of meeting, the ark of the testimony, and the mercy seat that is on it, and all the furniture of the tabernacle, the table and its utensils, the pure gold lampstand with all its utensils, the altar of incense, the altar of burnt offering with all its utensils, and the laver and its base, the garments of ministry, the holy garments of Aaron the priest and all the garments of his sons to minister as priests, and the anointing oil and sweet incense for the holy place. According to all that I have commanded you, they shall do. So that's quite a list of items. But let's look at what they mean. The tabernacle, that's a tent. So they're in a tent. This is a tent where heaven meant earth. This is a tent where God's presence was known. It said that there's a, a smoke or a cloud or the presence of God when he was in the tent. On the mercy seat, there was a physical presence that people could see. And this was in the middle of all where the tribes were camped. This tent would go wherever they were. And it, I think you're going to see pictures or Pastor Phyllis made a diagram of what that was like. But it was an object. Here, this is our tabernacle, right? This is your temple. This is your place of meeting. There they were in a desert. They were crossing, so they had to have something portable. But they made it beautiful. They used gold rings. They used gold clasps. They used the skins of badgers. I think I read that they used otter skins or seal skins. You know, it's like... What were the badgers? People argue over what it meant. In Michigan, we would have used wolverines, right? But they used the best that they had. They used the most beautiful physical things they had to create a place worthy of God. King Solomon later said when he made the temple, he said, obviously God can't, you know, this is not good enough for God. He can't really fit in an earthly place. Nevertheless, this is our representation of what God means to us. Now here I'm looking at this beautiful stained glass window. It's not fancy, but it's still beautiful. We Baptists, we're not big into fancy. So our places aren't so, you know, decked out and gorgeous, but we did have a banana being shaken this morning with music, so we're getting there. (laughs) It was pretty nice. So this tent of meeting must have been amazing. Imagine you're there in the desert, again, It's cold at night. It's hot by day. You're way far away from any city you ever knew. But in the midst of your camp, you've got this tent. It's red, white, blue, and purple. And there's this big cloud or this big smoke presence. And God himself is there. That's, that's, it's out there, isn't it? The Bible says this is what was with the people. This is the God that, parted the Red Sea. This is a God that brought the quail down. This is a God that brought the manna down. This is a God of miracles. 
This is a God who was present with his people in a very physical way. Now we, coming down to today, we have the Holy Spirit of God. We have a different presence. We don't have the physical presence that we can see, but at this time they had that. It's like camping with God. That's what they did. They were camping with God for 40 years, traveling with him, unlearning how to be a slave, learning how to be one of God's people. That was their process. I submit to you, 40 years wouldn't be too long for such a process. I'm 52. I'm still learning to be God's person. And it'll, it'll keep going. This is not something that happens quickly. It's a very long process. But they were under it. These were pilgrims. Now I'm going to look at the next section, which is verses, seven, verses 12 through 17. It's about the Sabbath. And I'm going to read it quickly, which isn't Sabbath-like. But it says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak also to the children of Israel, saying, Surely my Sabbaths you shall keep, for it is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I am the Lord who sanctifies you. He's giving his name again. He says, I am the Lord who sanctifies you. You shall keep the Sabbath, therefore, for it is holy to you, Everyone who profanes it shall surely be put to death. For whoever does any work on it, that person shall be cut off from among his people. Work shall be done for six days, but the seventh is the Sabbath of rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day, he shall surely be put to death. Therefore the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath to observe the Sabbath throughout their generations as a perpetual covenant. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. I think what I'm going to do is emphasize, first of all, ask a question, is the Sabbath still incumbent upon us? It said here that if we didn't follow the Sabbath, we'd be put to death. And if you look at many of the prophets of the Old Testament, They were calling the people back to the Sabbath. They felt like God's judgment was visiting them because they pretty much were just concerned with their own worldly needs and they'd stopped hanging out with God. They stopped camping with God. They stopped regarding God. They kind of forgot him, and that's what losing the Sabbath meant um, to them. If you look at Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 4, this is where I understand that we as followers of Christ have been released from the obligation which was on the people of Israel to follow the Sabbath in a legal kind of way where we would be put to death if we didn't follow it. It says there in Romans chapter 8, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, and that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. 
Now, if you could not mentally follow all four of those verses in one take, you probably were not good at diagramming sentences when you were young, or maybe they didn't do it. I mean, look at Paul. Paul's thought complex is extremely complicated, if you ask me. When I first became a Christian after I was in college, I really struggled with Paul. Reading Paul's writings, I really scratched my head a lot. But I think the upshot here is about spirit. It says, pretty much, if you don't walk according to flesh, but according to spirit, then that's what justifies us. Christ justified us. Christ satisfied the system. Christ is our Sabbath. It says elsewhere in Scripture that we will enter into our Sabbath rest, that God has a rest for us. And today is Sunday. Now, I think the Sabbath tradition among Christians is a very good thing, and I think it's something we actually need, but it's not like you're going to be put to death if you don't follow it. Apparently, the the Ten Commandments, the only one that wasn't repeated in the New Testament was the one concerning the Sabbath, but the other nine are repeated in the New Testament. So what's good about the Sabbath? Well, a few years ago, in Greece, they did a study. They looked at about 7,000 people. They compared people who took siestas to people who didn't. And they found the siesta keepers didn't have sudden death from heart problems, lived longer, had less disease, better breath. Now, I don't know about the better breath. But anyway, there was a big difference where if you took a siesta, it was really good for you. Now, in America, do we take siestas? Not really. It's not part of our culture. I worked in a very high-performance laboratory for four years, and our, our, our chief scientist was a Taiwanese woman. And we had such a beautiful tradition. In the afternoon in our lab, we had nap time, just like romper room. <laughs> you, put your, you, put your, you put your arms on the table like this, and she encouraged people to take a nap in the afternoon for at least 20 minutes. So this is a tradition in our lab. And I think what she noticed is we were doing very expensive experiments. If you did one little stupid miscalculation, you might cost, you know, a few thousand dollars easily of just stuff going to waste. So anyhow, I thought it was pretty neat. In Africa, where we live now, people get up early in the morning, say four, to walk to the city to work or to to jog along the roads to get their bus. And then, say, between 11 and 1, you'll see people sleeping under trees, just laying on the ground. It's so cool. Everyone's just laying on the ground, sleeping everywhere. And then I'm talking about working people, okay? This isn't the office workers. These are the people doing practical labor-type work, which is the dominant work. And then they'll work till about 4, and then they'll head home. Maybe they'll get home by 6 or 7. The idea is try to get home before dark. Um, But the siesta thing is pretty natural, In medical school, we learned that there's two times people sleep. They sleep at night, and then you get sleepy in the mid-afternoon. Or you get sleepy when someone's preaching with a full battery. (laughs) Anyhow, you could get sleepy. Other things good about resting, okay? If I kept you awake long enough, you would eventually start seeing and hearing things, which is called psychosis. This is well known to, this was used in torture quite a bit. They wouldn't let people sleep. Then they start hearing and seeing things. Do you know that when you dream at night, your brain is storing memories? And if you couldn't dream, you could not make new memories. Now, you don't usually remember your dreams. The older you get, like by age 50, you only are supposed to remember one dream a year. That's pitiful, isn't it? 
Some people remember more. But the process of dreaming is, is memory storage. And sleep is necessary. Sleep is like Sabbath every day, isn't it? But it's, look at everything in nature. God gave this reason for the Sabbath. He said, look, six days I created. On the seventh, I rested and I rejoiced. So that's the idea. We need to rest and rejoice too. It's not, who saw, what was it called, the shining? What did Jack type? Does anyone remember? We're not talking about Phil and Laurel's Jack. Laura's Jack. All work and no play makes Jack a dull boy. That's all he was typing. It's true. It makes you sick. It makes, it'll give you heart problems. It'll shorten your life. So I'm just saying, if you're one of those real go-getter, eager beavers, God doesn't make it a law for you to take a Sabbath. You've been freed by Christ from the legal aspect of it. But it's still, it's still profitable to us to have a Sabbath, to shut down. You just have to figure out how to do it. But I do believe God still wants that for us. Finally, verse 18, this is where the conversation ends. And when he had made an end of speaking with him, that's God and Moses, on Mount Sinai, he gave Moses two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone, written with the finger of God. So here's where the tribes of Israel go from being an oral tradition people to being a written people. And hey, we've got the fruit right here. We have a written Bible. It's been passed down. If you read the traditions of scribes, how they kept it perfect. You know when they, they call it the Torah. When they write the Torah, the person has to bathe every time they write God's name. If they make any mistake, they have to like take the whole parchment page out and like start over again. It has to be perfect. They actually do math tricks to keep straight that they haven't made any errors. They assign a numeric value to each number or to each letter, and then they add up each passage to make sure the number's perfect. So it's like it's, it's an accounting system to make sure they haven't made any mistakes. So they get this perfect number. So they know they've faithfully reproduced. It's digital, if you will. They figured this out a long time ago. But here's God. He has a conversation with Moses. He's giving him instruction. These are the guys who are going to be in charge of the design of all the tabernacle stuff. This is what you're going to have to build. This is how you keep the Sabbath law. And finally, you don't have to remember it perfect because I'm writing it down for you. And he gives them the tablet. There are two things really important in Jewish culture that are incumbent upon fathers. One is that they teach their children a trade of some kind so that they will be able to survive as adults and benefit the community. The second thing is they have to learn to read. And this goes back to ancient times. In ancient times, Jewish people would gather in a small place, wherever it was. They would read together. If you're a Jew and you go to temple, everyone has to read. That's part of it. Literacy is is next to godliness. You know, we say for America, cleanliness next to godliness. In the Jewish culture, being able to read is next to godliness. Now, reading in itself is kind of a miracle. Did you know your brain has to do 26 or so different steps for you to take a written thing, turn it into a sound, turn it into a word? That's why dyslexia is pretty common. So many things have to work right in your brain for that to happen. It's really a remarkable ability Nobody could have predicted it, but because we have writing, we can see what Moses wrote. Nobody has to get the story wrong. We have a written story. 
We have it here, and you're moving through it. So what does this say about the gospel? What does this say about Jesus? Where is Jesus in the story? Well, Jesus is the word, isn't he? And he's the first word. He is the word. He was with God from the beginning. Here we have a written word. We have the written rules of God, the law. We have the tabernacle, the temple, the items. But Jesus pretty much satisfies all of this. We have Christ today. We have Jesus. We have his testimony. We had his perfect sacrifice. We have a continuation of the story, but we don't see it the way the tribal Jewish people would have seen it some 3,500 years ago when this story takes place. But we are their descendants as far as culture. We are their descendants as far as covenant relationship with God. But I think it's easier for us because Jesus did all the work. This is an area of tension between theologians. If you look at the book of James, James says, and this is what I preached on um, a number of years ago. In this church, we talked about James. James says, show me your faith without works. And he says, I'll show you my faith by what I do. So I think sometimes it could be semantics. But James's idea is you aren't just saved by faith alone, but you're saved by, because you have faith, you're going to do stuff. So there's a little wiggle room there. Anyhow, I think it's somewhat easier for us in 2018 to maybe not see the power of God directly through miracles as they saw then, but we see the power of God in maybe less dramatic ways, but nevertheless still present for us. Now our mission in Africa has been going on for 15 years, and what we do there is we train people to do health work. I'm going to show a brief video uh, playing on the health aspects of that work. Well, in the tradition of Bezalel and Ahaliab, we have to use the skills that God gave us to minister to him and to serve the needs of people. And the, the needs that we mostly serve are health-related because we spend our time learning about health. Another thing that we're pretty into are plants and chickens. We had so much fun, we're having so much fun being with Bill and Jan because yours is the only other house we've ever been in that has chicks inside the house, which is really cool. So we, yesterday, we're staying with them, and they have some turkeys that have just hatched out, and we're comparing notes and talking about incubating, and I like to play a little video about our chicken project now. You know what? If, did, you can just do the short one that says poultry focus, if you like, but we'll see. And we thank you. First Baptist Church of Holly, you've supported our ministry for 15 years now, and we feel like we're halfway through our mission. If God gives us the health and strength, we hope to do another 15 years, and then we'll have a place to live, and so we'll be able to do ministry, hopefully, in retirement there as well. But it's really nice to be in a place where your skills can serve people's needs, and as we get to know people, more doors open for us especially with the Muslim community, which is more challenging to reach. But we've been there long enough that we've developed quite a degree of trust, which we certainly never want to abuse. And birds are one of the ways that we can reach across to Muslims because they love um, growing their own food, 
they have halal ways of slaughtering things. It's a little bit legalistic, but you work with what you have. And they love birds, so it's one of our little bridges that we can use to cross. So in summary, is Exodus chapter 31, you have God instructing how the things are to be made for the tabernacle. The tabernacle is a place symbolizing the relationship between Israel and God where sacrifices are made so that the people will be made right with God, which is called atonement. And finally, at the end of the, the Sabbath instructions are given, the Sabbath is a sign of God's creation and that God rested. And so he's telling us, look, you're my creation. I made you in my image. You also need to rest, and we still need to now. And finally, his word came to us in writing. Now, I hope you enjoy the rest of your journey through the book of Exodus. And I challenge you, consider, we saw the skills of our musicians today, and we sang with them. Consider the craft that God has given you. What special thing has he anointed you to do as far as a task or a craft, such as Bezalel and Ahalehab had special gifts and skills. What has he had? Take that, do something beautiful with it. For some people, it's cutting diamonds. For other people, it's making music. For some, it may be teaching in school or doing ministry to people who have developmental problems. We all have our gifts. Maybe it's working with someone who's caught up in drug addiction, which is becoming increasingly common in America. Take the gift God gave you. Make something beautiful of it in his image. He's a creator God. He's The Muslims call him creator and sustainer of worlds, plural. It's an interesting view of who he is. I would take that name for God, but more so I would take the name of Christ, a God who loves us, a God who died for us, a God who sustains us every day, who forgives us when we go astray, who tries to lead us back on his path. So take up the path God gave you. Take up the skill he gave you. Develop the creative side. Be creative like God. That's his call to us. Thank you very much.